This evening, we uh, step again into biblical eschatology. Still on our foundational principles, we won't really have a passage to go to this evening. However, I will ask you to turn to several as the evening goes on. We've spoken already of four key points to biblical interpretation. That was uh, two lessons ago, that God's word is true, that God desires that, that truth to be communicated, that only God's spirit can illuminate men to the truth, and that we are still accountable before God to study. We built upon those four key truths our method of interpretation, a literal, grammatical, contextual, historical method of, uh, of um, interpretation where to the best of our ability we are reading the text naturally. Where we see symbolism, we read symbolism. Where we see metaphor and simile, we read metaphor and simile. Where we see history, we read history. Where we see poetry, we read it like poetry. This is natural. This is how we would approach any other book. The reason why we don't want to approach the Bible that way is because it constrains us to what God wants us to believe instead of what we want the Bible to say. And so we twist it and we contort it and we confuse it and we say, well, it doesn't have to mean that. Well, that wasn't actually history. So that we can conform God's Word to our image instead of God's Word conforming us to God's image. And so our four key points, then our method of interpretation. Last time we spoke of some foundational tenets of prophetic interpretation, you recall. Dual fulfillment. That you can have one prophecy that is fulfilled in two different places historically. One early, one late, oftentimes the early one serving to verify, validate, authenticate the reality of the prophecy so that you know the later one is coming. That's dual fulfillment. Then, the uniqueness of time and prophecy. I guess I flipped those. Uh, we did uniqueness of time first. But uniqueness of time and prophecy. That time was not always A to B to C. That sometimes the prophets saw events that they saw smashed one right next to the other that in fact had months, weeks, years, decades, centuries between them. And so we saw that time was unique. And then we also saw the possibility that God can change His pronouncement. That though He says something shall come to pass, whether a pronouncement of blessing or a pronouncement of judgment in prophecy, that that is not inherently um, dogmatic. That that can change based upon man's response to that prophecy. We looked at Jonah. So God declares Nineveh will be destroyed. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Nineveh will be destroyed. The people repent sincerely and God diverts His judgment from the city. Even though God had not given any indication that judgment could be diverted as far as Jonah preached to that city. So today we add the next, and I will say the final layer of biblical interpretation before we step firmly into understanding um, the end times events. And this final layer is the framework. So we've got our method, literal, contextual, grammatical, historical. We've got the key points. We see how prophecy works. Now the framework within which we are going to interpret prophecy. And so we begin by looking at some essential truths concerning God's dealing with this world. And the first word that I want to give you in regard to these essential truths is the word age, or the idea of ages. The scriptures speak often of ages, that being periods of time that God has delineated and distinguished within the course of history. Now, the Greek word that we speak of here you can see on the screen behind you, I own, literally means an age or an era. It can also oftentimes be called, uh, be used to speak of eternity in the Greek um, because it speaks of ages plural. So when we see it in the plural, the ages, it's often speaking of either eternity future or more often eternity past. Now in our King James Bibles, this word is regularly not, it's not translated age, it's regularly translated world. And this is one of the few times where I will get up here and I will say that the King James translators did something very unfortunate with that translation. 
Now, we stand upon the King James because we believe it is a very accurate translation of the Bible, also because we recognize that the Greek text underlying the King James is a different Greek text from that which underlies all other modern translations. And we are not inherently loyal to the King James. We are inherently loyal to the text that undergirds the King James because when we study history, when we understand what, um, what the, the newer text, the philosophy that propels, that compels that newer text, it's a humanistic philosophy that we don't want in our Bibles. And so that is why we use the King James. However, this is a place, this is a word, a translation that I, as far as my study can take me, and as far as, as all of the men's shoulders whom I'm standing on for um, translating the word, for how that word is used, for usages, all of those things, this word uh, is much better if we see it as the idea of an age or an era, not necessarily Oh, the, the entirety of the world or when the world began. This word often speaks of eternity future, I said that, being translated forever, or eternity past, something that has always been. It never inherently speaks of something that began with the physical world, as the King James Version would seem to indicate. Several modern translations do use a better word here. They supplement age, instead of world, which I believe gives the proper idea. That the Bible speaks in terms of ages or periods of time within history that have beginnings and endings. I'd like us to take just, I'll look at a few examples of this as we see it in the scriptures. In Luke chapter 1, verse 70, we see a description of an age wherein prophets operated. Luke one seventy says, As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Now this is one where you could say, yes, world is fine, that makes sense, that world is there. However, uh, as we think about it, it would also make sense that it's not speaking of a time since the world began. Zechariah is here speaking of the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And he references a specific time. Not specifically to the time of creation, but to a particular period within which God used prophets to speak. Now, again, God has had people prophesy since very early on. Not since the very foundation of the world inherently, but since very early on. However, if you were to think of the time period within which God used his prophets to speak, what would you think of? Rhetorical, of course you would think of the time between Moses and Malachi, would you not? You, or perhaps Moses and John the Baptist, if we want to include him in those Old Testament prophets. You would think of that time within which God has given his law, and now it, God sends them prophets. God sends Israel prophets to remind them of the law and to give signs and wonders to validate his law. In fact, it was not until the law that God gave any sort of teaching as to how to regulate prophecy. It was in the law that God said if a prophet says something and it does not come to pass, then he needs to be stoned. It was in the law that God said if a prophet says something and it does come to pass, but it is not in line with the word of God, then he needs to be stoned. And so until the time of the Mosaic law, there was no regulation on prophets. God did not regularly use prophets. There were prophets, but it was not a regular thing. The time in which prophets worked was the time of the law. We call that the age. And so as we're reading this, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the age began. And it would make, entire, it would, it would make sense that Zechariah would be talking about the current age that they were in because nothing had changed stepping into the New Testament. They were still in the age of the law, were they not, until Christ died. And so that was the age. In like manner, there are several times where the Scriptures speak of this current age, the church age, or the time of the Gentiles, the age of grace, the time between when Jesus ascended into heaven and specifically when He raptures His church, we would call the church age. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 say this, 
which was wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now again, we can think of the worlds that are this and and the world that is to come. However, we understand that Jesus Christ will rule in the millennium and that will still be this world, but it will certainly be a different age. Titus chapter 2, verse 12, um, teaching us, we'll, we'll start in verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, or present age, in the time in which we are living, in the era in which we are living. So we see at least one. You say, well, pastor, all of those, world could work there. Okay, I'll give you that. World could work there. We could put world in there. Maybe you've understood it that way for years. That's fine. However, I I firmly believe that this is a a better translation. And if you were to look up the word in any concordance, you would find the idea of ages or eras to be how that word is commonly understood and was used. We see as well that the Bible seems to regard these ages as important mile markers by which to assert truth. One man put it this way as he presented the issue, the ages are often referred to in the scriptures and the study of the exact conditions and purposes of each of them is not a fanciful pursuit, but is rather the only adequate foundation for any true knowledge of the Bible. If we had time, we could go through at least 20 verses which speak of the world in this manner as referring to a a type of age and era of time in our Bibles. We could highlight specifically plans that God had throughout each of these ages of history. We're not going to do that tonight for the sake of time, but I do have a list in my notes of all of those instances where the Bible uses this word and age is a very appropriate idea and that's the concept that is uh, attempting to get across. So Matt, you see him in the notes there. We're not going to read through those. So as we interpret prophecy, the framework that we build on top of our literal, grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation is that God has, has been working and instituted ages of time and He's working within these ages. And He works a little bit differently depending on the age in which we read or, or we find ourselves. And so the first age, there's debates as to how many ages there were. Some people say two, some people say five, some say seven, some say eight. Uh, There's debates in theology as to how many there were. However, I'd like us to look at two. We're going to look at one that is going to lead into the second, which is going to lead into our study of biblical eschatology and times events. And so we'll begin with this first age that as far as what we'll look at, which is the age of national Israel. The age of national Israel. In Exodus, we read the account of God redeeming Israel from the land of Egypt. And He told Israel why in Exodus 19, 4-6. He said this, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you unto Myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God set the nation of Israel up to be a peculiar people. And the purpose was that this people would be rightly related to God so that they could then show the rest of the world how to be rightly related to God. God then gave them promises. He promised to give them an earthly kingdom known as the promised land of Canaan. He promised to give them peace, prosperity, and joy forever. Such was Israel's understanding of the promise revealed even by Moses when God's wrath was threatening to destroy the people for their sins. God, and when God wanted to destroy the people, Moses said this in Exodus 23, or excuse me, 32, 13. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidst to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. This was the expectation, a physical kingdom inherited by the nation of Israel because this was what God promised. Israel's seed would grow. They would inherit the land of Canaan forever. Now the kingdom promise became much more defined during the time of the reign of King David over Israel. Several hundred years later, after Israel entered the land, David desired to build God a house, you might recall. Until this time, the physical presence of God had been with the nation of Israel in a mobile tabernacle, a a tent, moving through the borders of Israel, moving where they needed to move at any given time. David desired to make a permanent dwelling place for God among his people in Jerusalem, a desire which God was pleased with However, he would not allow David to do it. He did not allow David to do it because David was a bloody man. His kingdom and his life was built by war. And God wanted his temple to be associated with peace. So God said, I will not allow you to build the temple, but I will allow your son to build it. And then God promised David something else. And he promised David this in 2 Samuel 7. If you turn there with me. 2 Samuel 7. I show you only verse 16, but we're going to read verses 8 through 16. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, God speaking to the prophet Nathan, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. God promised to establish the nation, and then he also promised to establish David's throne in Israel forever. So we see a land that is promised to a nation the nation of Israel forever. And we see a throne of the land of promise that is promised to David's seed forever. Now, is there any doubt at this point that the nation of Israel is fully justified? As far as prophecy is concerned, fully justified in expecting from God, at at this point, 2 Samuel 7, expecting from God a physical kingdom with a physical king reigning over a physical nation of Israel. This has been what God has promised. And these promises are reiterated and reaffirmed throughout the prophets. We read in in Ezekiel, time and time again, as the nation of Israel was going into bondage, that God was offering hope, saying that God would restore not just Israel, but that He would bring Judah and Israel back together. And that he would do a work not just for Israel, but he oftentimes called them Jacob. The name prior to Israel's covenant with God. Prior to his name change. 
We see national expectation all throughout the Old Testament prophets. And there's really no reason as we step into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to assume that national Israel would have believed anything other than that they as a nation were going to have a kingdom. And that David was going to rule over them. And that God would fulfill His promises literally as He gave them. But something happened to Israel, didn't it? Because as we look at Israel today, which has only existed for 60 years, as we look at Israel today, they haven't been given the promises that God proclaimed, have they? We have yet to see in history, from the day of their proclamation, a time when these prophecies have been fulfilled in the manner that God gave them. So the question, the debate, is over three different possibilities. Number one, God's promises have failed. We know that, that can't be it. Number two, that God has redefined Israel and that the church is now Israel. That defies a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation of the Word of God. Or number three, that God's promises to Israel are valid and yet to come. And what we will see tonight from the Word of God is that number three is what God teaches. That's what the epistles teach. That as we look at the Old Testament and we see that God has literally fulfilled His promises, and then we read in the New Testament what Paul says about Israel in the future, and we look at prophecy and what God has to say about what is going to happen in the future, it all shows us that God still has a plan for national Israel. And to do this, I'd like you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. This is a contentious topic. Shouldn't necessarily be one, but it is. Many people have many different ideas. And that's why we're starting foundationally. Because if I were just to start teaching you prophecy, then you wouldn't have any of this understanding of where I'm coming from. And so, again, I've said this before, you don't have to agree with me. But you will at least know that I've started at the foundation and that I am interpreting consistently based upon what I understand about how to interpret God's Word and what the interpretation of God's Word means. So that's why this foundation, as I'm giving it to you, is so essential. So that you can see that at least Pastor Wickler is not just trusting in a bunch of commentaries, or Pastor Wickler is not just pulling this stuff out of thin air. That doesn't mean you have to agree with Pastor Wickler. But at least follow me here. In Deuteronomy 28, we see God reminding Israel of the blessings that would come upon them in the land of their obe- uh, for their obedience and the cursings that would come upon them in the land for, for their disobedience. Now, among these blessings, we see physical health, prosperity, we see dominance over their enemies, We see plenty in the land and we see blessings even upon their weather. God also, however, He doesn't just present blessings for their obedience. (laughs) I can't see a thing. He also presents cursings for their disobedience. Thank you, Matt. (laughs) We're getting there. He's he's working on it. We see uh, uh, cursings for their disobedience. If they disobey the Word of God, their health will falter, their crops will die, their weather will be awful, they will be plagued, they will fall before their enemies. This is what God is telling them in Deuteronomy 28. That there will be blessings for obedience, there will be cursings for disobedience. That they can expect this, that this is a part of God's covenant with them. Notice what he says then in Deuteronomy um, chapter 28, verses 63 through 68. He says, And it shall come to pass 
But as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And ye shall be plucked from off the land whither thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people, from the one end of the earth even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods which neither thou nor thy fathers have known even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, and failing of eyes, and sorrow of mind. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shalt have none assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would God it were even, and in the evening thou shalt say, Would God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart wherewith thou shalt fear, and for, for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships, by way that whereof I spake unto thee. Thou shalt see it no more again, and there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. In these verses, we see promises of the nation being scattered among all people. If they disobey God to the point of, of severe judgment, they will be scattered. They will live in fear. They will not be comfortable. They will, they will uh, be in a place of complete and utter disrepair as a nation. Now think with me through history. To this point in the Scriptures, these seem like promises contingent upon Israel's actions. Right? To this point in, in the promises, God says, if you do this, if you, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. Dependent upon their actions. However, as we step into chapter 30, we find out that these words are more than simply contingent promises. These are prophetic words of what God says will happen to them in the latter days. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And notice what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 1. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God. And so we'll continue in a moment, but God says when these things happen, Notice he doesn't say if these things happen. He says when these things happen. When you're given all the blessings, then you're given all the cursings, then you're scattered among the nations, and you're where the Lord will drive thee, then something will happen. So, it seems as though God is telling them that this is indeed going to happen. And as we look into history, it did happen, didn't it? Israel was scattered as a nation. Pastor, when did this happen? Well, the most notable captivity in the Bible is the 70 years of captivity, correct? That's really the time when Israel was taken out of their land, but that doesn't fit the bill. That doesn't work with these promises of judgment. Why? Because Israel was not scattered. They were taken as an entire nation over to Babylon. They were kept together. There were remnants left in the land, but they were by and large kept together as a nation. So much so that in Babylon, they even had pockets of Jewish communities. Nor were they years, those 70 years, of terror and of fear. In fact, many Israelites, a majority of Israelites, were so comfortable at the end of those 70 years of captivity that when Cyrus gave the decree that people could return the majority of them stayed in Babylon. They didn't return. They didn't go back to Israel. Well, what was there for them? They'd spent 70 years in Babylon. And so the 70-year captivity could not have fit the bill for these promises. The only time in history then that fits the bill is beginning in 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple ended the existence of Israel as a nation for some 1,900 years of history. At that time, Israel truly scattered. The Jews scattered. They had no more national identity. The land was no longer reserved for them. 
they scattered. History has also borne out that their experience during this time of scattering has been one that has been very difficult for them, hasn't it? In the Crusades, they were hunted down and killed. In the Inquisition, they were hunted down and killed. In World War II, they were hunted down and killed. Anti-Semitism has spanned every culture and every societal expectation and every age, hasn't it? You won't find a society that, that, is, that does not have a contingency of anti-Semitism in it. So while on an individual scale many Jews live lives of comfort, on a broader scale we see that the Jews have been targeted and hated throughout their days. And so we see to this point in Deuteronomy 30, if we think about to this point in history and God's promises in Deuteronomy 30, up to uh, 28 through 30, up to 30 verse 1, and now we think of history, uh, God had promised to bless them and to curse them. We saw the blessings and the cursings. You can read that in, in the Bible. We can see God blessing them in the time of David and Solomon, God cursing them in the times following with Rehoboam and the divided kingdom, and then um, their 70 years of captivity, and all the way to the scattering and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And these line up literally. Literal fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28 through 30, verse 1, with what we see in history to this point. It's happened just as God said, and it's happened to national Israel. And this is important, because Deuteronomy 30 doesn't end with verse 1. Wouldn't that be funny? A one-verse chapter. Now we see a psalm, psalm that's very short. But uh, Deuteronomy 30 doesn't end there. Let's read verses 2 through 10. I'll, I'll begin back in 1 for context. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee in this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land whither thy fathers possessed, which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart, and the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies, and on them that hate thee, which persecuted thee. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord, and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body, in the fruit of thy cattle, in the fruit of thy land, for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. I hope that those of you that were present for our Ezekiel series had some bells ringing. God promised to regather them and then to circumcise their heart. We saw that same promise in Ezekiel. We see the same promise in Jeremiah 31 through 33. That God would bring His people together and circumcise their hearts, give them a new heart and a new soul. This has yet to happen in Israel, folks. God promised it in Deuteronomy 30. God promised it through Jeremiah. God promised it through Ezekiel. Now, if the prophecies of Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30 verse 1 have come to pass literally to national Israel unto this day in history, it should not be a difficult leap for us to assume that the rest will take place literally as well unless there is something major biblically that would divert our understanding. But again, we come to an impasse. 
If all of the other promises came to pass, then why haven't verses 2 through 10 come? If verse 1 came to pass, then why haven't we seen 2 through 10 come to pass? Well, did God's promises fail? No. God doesn't fail. Well, then we've only got those other two theories left. Either the church took those promises, or Israel still has them coming. So let's talk about that second age. The first age in question was national Israel. Now let's talk about the second age in question, and that is the church. Please turn with me to Romans 9. Beginning at Pentecost, things changed dramatically. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He's buried. He rises again the third day. He spends uh, a good amount of time with his disciples following his resurrection. And then he ascends into heaven, at which time an angel appears and says, Why are you standing waiting in the heavens? Jesus Christ will come in like manner. Go and occupy till he come. And Jesus said uh, to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power of the Holy Ghost. And then that they would be witnesses unto the Lord in Judea, uh, Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the, of the world. And so they wait, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. They speak in tongues, uh, cloven as fire, we recall that. Uh, we spoke of that in our morning series not long ago, talking about the sign gifts. And so we uh, see that, and that is the initiation of this age that we call the church age. Now, the church is not, never presented in Scripture as having replaced Israel, as Israel's national promises. We do see some relationships between the church and Israel. And we do see some overlap in their responsibilities and privileges, but we do not see a complete replacement. And that's what I want to show you in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. We see, first of all, the church is related to Israel in that it was Israel's rejection of Messiah that brought about the offer of the gospel to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33 say this, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So Israel propped the law up as their God, and so they missed it. They missed Messiah. They missed the gospel. But the Gentiles didn't miss it. And so because Israel missed the gospel... Because Israel rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ says, now I go to the Gentiles. And Jesus Christ said to do the same thing to his apostles, that they would go to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So the Jews get first crack at it. When they reject it, then you go to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ came to the Jews. The Jews rejected him. The offer was made available to all. It was in God's plan. It was a part of God's purpose. But it was the rejection of Messiah by Israel that brought about the opportunity for the Gentiles to become a part of the church. So the church is related to Israel in that it was Israel's rejection of Messiah that brought about God's offer of the gospel to the Gentiles. Second, we see the church is related to Israel in that God is using the church as a means by which to provoke Israel to jealousy. Romans chapter 11, verses 9 through 12. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. That's Psalm 69. I say then, have they, that's Israel, national Israel, stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. And notice what he says in verse 12. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them be the riches of the Gentiles, 
how much more their fullness. If their fall, if they're setting aside, if their program being put on pause so that the Gentiles could come in brought about such amazing blessings to the Gentile world, how much greater will it be when God restores them? When God's people are finally brought back into God's promises, when God's people are finally, finally aligned themselves with God's Word and God's will, how much greater will everything be when the people whom God has promised national, physical promises to align themselves with God's promises? This is what Paul is teaching. So, the church is related to Israel and that Israel's rejection of Messiah brought about the Gentile salvation. The church is related to Israel in that God is using the church as a means by which to provoke Israel to jealousy as a part of what will bring them back to Christ. The other way that the church is related to Israel is in their responsibility, their foundational purpose. Israel as a nation was elect. They were nationally elect for a purpose and that was to be rightly related to God so that they could show the rest of the world how to be rightly related to God. That is what the Bible speaks of when it talks about election. It doesn't mean salvation. Election is not the same as salvation. Election is being chosen for a purpose. The nation of Israel outside of salvation was elect. Even if none of them ever got saved, the nation itself was still elect for the purpose of showing the world what it was to serve God through the law. Even those who were unbelievers in Israel would receive the blessings of the Mosaic Law if they obeyed the responsibilities of the Mosaic Law. So they were elect unto that purpose. Now the church received that blessing of election. In other words, whereas Israel used to be the one that was rightly related to God so that they could show the rest of the world how to be rightly related to God, when Israel rejected Messiah, that responsibility transferred from Israel to the church. So now the church has the responsibility of being rightly related to God so that we can then show the world how to be rightly related to God. Now the difference, of course, being that in national Israel you became a part of that elect by being born into the nation and being circumcised on the eighth day. In the church, you become a part of the elect by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. However, the church does overlap in that purpose with Israel. Israel had that purpose. Now the church has that purpose. And so Paul's teaching culminates with the very same promise that we just explored in Deuteronomy 30. Paul reiterates the promise in Deuteronomy 30 in Romans chapter 11. He says it was promised in Deuteronomy 30, and by the way, as of Romans chapter 11, this promise for Israel still stands. Take a look at it with me. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 29. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, lest ye get puffed up and think that you're something special. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from who? Jacob. Not Israel, not the covenant name, those that believe that the church replaced Israel. How do they explain Paul saying that it's going to be Jacob? I don't know, it's not, it's not up there. Uh, in, in, uh, in verse uh, 26, I only gave you a snippet of it. In verse 26, he says, Paul says, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them. This is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sakes. They are enemies of the gospel, but they're beloved because they're elect of God. Elect for what? They were God's covenant people. God still has a plan for them. They have not been replaced. They have not been removed. They have simply been set on pause. 
They've been set aside for a time. And then we see verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. In other words, when God makes a promise, He keeps it. The word repentance has been skewed in our age. It doesn't mean that God's sorry. Repentance has nothing to do with sorrow. It does in today's dictionary, but not, not what we're dealing with as far as this word. There it is. Not what we're dealing with as far as this word. The gifts and the calling God are without repentance, without a change of mind. God doesn't change His mind. When He promises something, it will come to pass. If God's promises are that He will regather Israel to give them a new heart and a new mind, like He told them in Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 31-33 through and Ezekiel, and give them a physical kingdom upon this earth, then guess what, folks? He will do it. National Israel may have, been, may have rejected the gospel, but they are still elect unto God as a peculiar nation and as a peculiar treasure. So according to God's plan, Israel will remain scattered and blind to the gospel until, according to Romans chapter 11, verse 25, the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Once God's church is completely assembled, once every Gentile who will accept Christ does accept Christ, in other words, the rest of the world has openly rejected Him, at this time, God will begin to enlighten Israel once again. And this is where end times prophecy begins. Israel's rejection of Messiah and scattering among the nations is history. It's happened. It's recorded. We've seen it. The commencement of the church age is now contemporary. This is where we are. The next thing on the timetable, and we'll see this next week, according to the Word of God, is seven years of tribulation designed not for the church, but for God's elect Israel. It is a time for national Israel. And and the foundation this week, as we step into next week, light bulbs are going to come on for you. If you can understand what we saw this week, if you can wrap your mind around it, if you can see that God still has a plan for Israel, if you can see that Israel has been set aside so that the Gentiles can come in, but that God will recommence His program and fulfill all the promises that He gave them, if you can catch that, if you can wrap your mind around that, then next week, as we're looking in Daniel 9, it's all just going to become crystal clear to you. So now that we have our interpretive method and our framework put in place, we will look next time at the passages of Scripture that reveal the overarching plan of God, after which we can begin to get into the nitty-gritty the events of the end times as they unfold one after the other. Now as we close, again, no particular application except I would like to give us some context. It's a unique time. It's not necessarily unique in a manner of speaking, but it's somewhat unique in that we're seeing a, a time where Israel's back in the news heavily. And Christians have responded to this in various ways. And perhaps there's been some conflict in your heart over how it's best to respond to Israel. Now, uh, covenant theology is becoming popular again, which says Israel's done and gone and, and who cares about them. And so a lot of Christians don't care about Israel, national Israel anymore because they believe God's done with them. And then you have those on the other side of the spectrum who say everything that Israel does is gold. And that we need to support them 100% blindly. Have you ever seen that dichotomy and been conflicted because both of them seem like a problem? Seems that way to me. See, because I look at Israel and I say, wow, those people do some things that I don't approve of. Those people have some philosophies, some operations, the way that they operate, the things that they're doing that I can't support. They're not biblical, they're not right. And we shouldn't necessarily expect them to be because they're not Christians. It's not a Christian nation. It's Israel. They're as pagan as any other nation on earth. But we know that God has a plan. And so what I would encourage you to do as you approach the conundrum that is support for Israel, 
May I encourage you to support them in the same way that the Old Testament prophets supported them? The Scriptures do tell us, God promised to Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee. The Scriptures do tell us that God has a plan that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And yet, that didn't stop the prophets from speaking against Israel's actions, did it? The prophets still got up there and said, you are a wicked nation and you're doing wicked things and God will, will condemn you and God will judge you. Did that mean that the, the prophets didn't love Israel? Absolutely not. They were on their knees begging God for mercy. They were on their knees begging God for repentance. They were on their knees begging God to restore the kingdom again, to regather the nation, to bring peace to Israel. And so if I could give you a, some practical advice as to how to support Israel today. Don't support every policy. Don't support every war. Don't support every engagement because biblically speaking, you're going to be on the wrong side of the Bible if you support them in all of their actions and decisions. But if you will support what God says Israel will one day be, and so you will get on your knees and you will pray for Israel. And you will beg God for the peace of Jerusalem, as the Scriptures say. And you will ask God to bring about the restoration of His people. And you will get on God's page as far as His plan for Israel. Then as far as I understand it, you're doing every single thing that the prophets of the Old Testament did. You're doing everything that every man that ever saw Israel for what it ought to be against what it was, was doing, which was not supporting who Israel is, but supporting what God wants them to be and what they could be and what they will be one day. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So pray that God will restore His people. So pray that blindness might be lifted from their eyes. So pray that they would be saved. So pray that God will bring about His purposes. Is that not in the model prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that for Israel. But don't necessarily support them when they do things that are immoral, unethical, improper. Because there, our support for Israel is contradicting our understanding of the Word of God. That is my advice to you. That is where the Lord has brought me and perhaps it will at least get your wheels turning a little bit as you think of where Israel is right now, what God has for them in the future, and how you can approach the conundrum that is national Israel today. Let's pray.